Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of The Return of George Washington, 1783 to 1789, Edward Larson. Edward Larson, author of The Return of George Washington, return from where? Return back to public service, going to back to Mount Vernon after the Revolution, his home in Mount Vernon. He had been, of course, the revolutionary leader, spending a lot of time in Pennsylvania during the Revolution, stepping down, voluntary turnover power. He would have done that here in Philadelphia, but of course the uh, Congress had fl fled their own mutinous troops in Philadelphia and had encamped over in, in um, the capital of Maryland at the time, so he went to Annapolis, turned in his resignation, uh, went back to his farm, but then is pulled back into public service leading to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia and then the presidency, most of which he served here in Philadelphia. Con Congress fled mutinous troops? This oh. was after the Revolutionary War had been won? Well, the tr remember the troops hadn't been paid for um, years. The officers hadn't been paid for two or three years because the Confederation didn't have the power to tax. They could only ask the states, go hat in hand to the states for money. And once the war was pretty certain to be won, after that foreign threat was gone, uh, with the Battle of Yorktown, of course the revolution doesn't end right away because the effects of Yorktown have to go back to England and then trickle through uh, both uh, public opinion and parliament and eventually uh, leading to a treaty, um, of course co-drafted by a Pennsylvanian, um, Benjamin Franklin, over there, and then it has to, the news has to come back. So there's a couple years in there between when the British finally evacuate New York City and after the Battle of Yorktown, but most people knew the war was probably over. And so with that foreign threat gone, there was no money coming in to the uh, Congress. They couldn't pay their own troops. And so they were, they were badgering for money. And so at one point, they march on Congress, or what's left of Congress, there was only some people there, march on Congress right here in Philadelphia, and they become so threatened, they, they for a while refuse to let them leave the building. Uh, they're, they're, of course, simultaneously, they're asking Washington to take control so that they can get paid and get their pensions as, as promised. And so once, that's, once the crowd's dissipated, Congress just bolts out of town and moves to uh, Maryland and meets in the State House there in Annapolis for the, the remainder of the revolution. And that's where Washington goes to, to turn, re resign his commission, and that's where the, the peace treaty is finally you know, consummated. It, it happens in Europe, but it comes back to the, 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 the uh, government in Annapolis. How much time passed between Cornwallis surrendering at Yorktown and Washington resigning from the army? Well, Cornwallis occurred in 1781, and Washington doesn't finally resign from Congress, to, to Congress, turn in his resignation, until late December, just a couple days before Christmas in 
1783. So we're talking a good two years. What did the Army do in that time if there was no war to be fought? Well, the British still occupied New York City mm. uh, with an army. They still occupied Charleston in the south. And so basically the arm, what had been defeated is the army that had moved in the south under Cornwallis. That had been taken off the field, the, the, the army in the middle. Mm. Uh, and the northern army, the army directly under the command of George Washington, encamped around Newburgh in the uh, Hudson Valley and basically just kept a watch on the the uh, the British troops. Now at first we didn't know if they would end the war because they had plenty of resources back in England. They could come over but what the British decided pushed by people like Edmund Burke saying we're really we're really better off with a English a friendly English-speaking trading partner because what we've seen during the revolution is wherever our troops go with a couple exceptions like Saratoga and Yorktown, wherever our troops go, they can win. But they can only hold it so long as the army's there. It was a classic war of attrition that Washington figured out. At first, he didn't understand it. Early in the war, he was, he was trying to contest land. But after a while, he realized this is a war of attrition. And he would fight, but he'd fall back. And as long as he kept his army intact, uh, the British could hold where their troops were, maybe, but maybe they might even lose that. But then, they, as soon as they left, the Patriots would take back control. And so the British realized, we can't fight the people. And therefore, let's just give up and try to, try to make a friendly, English-speaking trading partner, because we're not going to have a submissive colony. What was it? What was the state of the war, or the government, that caused Washington to think, OK, it's safe for me now to resign from the army? Well, Washington had always promised that he would resign at the end of the war. During the war, British propagandists constantly uh, barraged the people, says, why are you revolting? Why are you revolting against one King George, King George III, just to get another in King George Washington? Because they argued revolutionary leaders always turn into into tyrants. Look at Julius Caesar, look at Oliver Cromwell. Of course, Napoleon was soon going to continue that mold. These revolutionary leaders, they say they're fighting for liberty, but they just take power and they become often even a worse tyrant than you, you had before. And Washington said, no, I'm, it said from the beginning, I'm a, I've not given up the citizen. I'm a civilian soldier and I'm going to retire when the war's over. Now, during the war, uh, an American painter then living in, um, in, uh, in England with close access to the king, um, the king once asked during the war, what, what do you think Washington will do after the war is over? And uh, the painter said, Benjamin West said, he'll, he'll step down. And w the King George says, well, if he does that, he will be the greatest person in the world. And, and that was the sense. Washington always carried, cared tremendously about his legacy. And he did believe in Republican virtue. He didn't imbibe those values. And so it was only natural that when the war ended, he would turn in his resignation. Uh, and he did so. And that's when the Cincinnatius myth 
starts the legacy of, of Washington as the second Cincinnati. Cincinnati was the Roman general who had twice been called out of retirement from the farm to lead Republican Rome. This is before the empire. Republican Rome to, to, to save it from its enemies, but then retired back rather than to become the leader, unlike Caesar would do later, retired back to his farm. So that image of the Cincinnatius, which then gets enshrined in the Society of Cincinnatius in the name of the town Cincinnati, that Washington legacy, that's when we start seeing uh, statues and, and images of Washington in a toga dressed as a Roman. I don't think he was going to an Animal House type <laughs> party. I think he was being captured um, in this sense of this great, um, this great victorious general, arguably then for having defeated the British the most powerful country in the world, arguably then the most famous person in the world. Certainly the, along with Benjamin Franklin, one of the two true national celebrities with, with, with immediate name recognition and admiration throughout the colonies. It was his resignation from office, even more than his victory at Yorktown, that m made the people trust him with power, love him, adore him. That was his, his legacy. So he wants to step down, but your question, you said, what made him trust the government? He didn't. He already didn't trust the government. Shortly before sending down, stepping down, he wrote a document called the Circular Letter to the States. It was a letter that in, 18, in 1783 went to all the states. And what it says is this central government isn't working. We need a stronger central government. We need to reform it. We need to have a true nation because look what's happening. My troops aren't being paid. Our creditors aren't being paid because the central government can't raise funds. What will, uh, what will even make it worse is the British won't leave the forts in the frontier, in the territory, in the Ohio country that they had given to under the peace treaty. They don't leave because we have no army to force them out. Um, there's, he's, he anticipates this, well, as he puts it, 13 sovereignties, meaning the 13 sovereign states, each pulling them, tugging their own way, tugging against the center, this sort of a union couldn't hold. So even before he steps down, he is pleading, he is arguing for a stronger central government. Did you read a lot of things that George Washington wrote to put this book together? I did. Um, where the book, idea of the book came from is there are so many wonderful books about Washington during the Revolution. You've had a lot of them on your show. We were talking about David Hacker Fisher and his book, uh, on, the, on Crossing, Washington's Crossing, magnificent book. There's wonderful biographies. Ron Chernow has an amazing biography of Washington. There's also a lot of books about him as president. But even if you look at those biographies, there's not much about these five, six years between the end of the revolution and him becoming president. They don't talk about that much. So I'm a history teacher. I teach this period. And when I'm teaching about the revolution, well, Washington's mentioned a lot. And when I'm teaching about the presidency, Washington's mentioned a lot. But I always spend a day or two of the period in between where you chronicle the collapse of the Confederation as Rhode Island is going off its way, Pennsylvania is going off another way, Georgia is going off another way, New York is blocking things, uh, Vermont is talking about leaving the Union altogether and going up and joining Canada. The whole thing's falling apart. And, so, and suddenly you never mention Washington. He's not talked about except for the fact that you know he went back to Mount Vernon and, and is farming. And now, he is a good farmer, and it's interesting to talk about his farming. Uh, but the point is, I wondered, what's Washington doing? If all this is happening, if everything's collapsing, 
Is he involved? Does was he, he care? Was he politically active? And, and he turns out he was. What I did was I said, okay, I'm going to take that period and I'm going to look, read his letters. I'm going to look through his letters. I'm going to look through what other people wrote about him. I'm going to look through about his diary, about seeing what he's actually doing during this period. Um, uh, I had the good fortune of being able to spend a year at the, at the new presidential library in Mount Vernon and, and go, go through their records for the period. Basically tried to reconstruct what Washington was doing this period to try to figure out Okay, how is he involved in this in-between period? And it could have found out that he was simply out there farming, which is how he's basically presented in most biographies. But it turns out he's not. While he's actively managing his farm, he is tremendously engaged. He is writing just letter after letter after letter to friends that he's developed. Remember, he had served as the revolution and he'd served in Massachusetts. He'd, he'd, he had battles there. He had long times there. He got to know a lot of people in and around Boston. He'd spent time in the New York area. He'd spent time in massive amounts of times in Philadelphia, of course, in New Jersey, all these places. He also had soldiers, many of them his close officers, who had then dispersed across the country, whether it be Hamilton going up to New York, uh, um, uh, David Humphreys going to Connecticut. People, uh, Henry Knox, who had been from Boston, who was his top lieutenant, these people had dispersed around the country. He remained in very close contact with them. In fact, they visited him. He had so many visitors to, to Mount Vernon where there was no local inn, so they'd actually stay with him and dine with him. If you follow his diary closely, you can see them back and forth. Indeed, he notes one time about uh, in, the, in, the eight, in the 1790s, he writes a note saying, that if no one pops up unexpectedly, and he actually uses the phrase pops up, no one pops up unexpectedly, tonight will be the first night in over 20 years that Martha and I have dined alone at Mount Vernon because he had so many visitors. Well, many of these people were the people he'd fought in the revolution, were the nation's political, economic, and social elite. He's writing to these people, and they're talking about what's happening to the country, what's happening under what they feared was the excesses of democracy majority faction where you had a, a one house, basically a one house legislature and a weak governor and no effective judicial review. That was particularly true in Pennsylvania and in, and in Rhode Island, but also to a lesser extent, many other states. And he saw those, the tyranny of the majority taking away or feared that they were taking away individual liberty and property rights. And they all communicated, they all talked, and that's this correspondence is what leads to the Constitutional Convention with Washington at its heart and draws in all these other people into this effort to make basically one nation out of many states, e pluribus unum. You say in the book that he was a, a devoted reader of the Pennsylvania packet? Yes, what, he, he read. What's it like to read that today? And what would he have learned from reading the Pennsylvania Well, he, he, he was an avid reader of newspapers. He received one of the perks he got um, from having been commander in chief is he got free mail delivery. And um, so he received a, a wide, there were, there were about 100 newspapers published in America at this time. And he received many of them. And he, there were several Pennsylvania newspapers that he read closely from Philadelphia. He read them from other areas. And so he would read them and what they were saying. Many of these newspapers were what would later be called pro-federalist. Then you'd actually be more pro-nationalist. The terms that was usually used in their correspondence was nationalism and nation. 
uh, and they um, they were talking about they would well Shays Rebellion was presented in the most dramatic terms. Historians now have sort of said it's a complicated thing. It wasn't complicated in the way Washington learned about it because he read about it in the newspapers from Pennsylvania and from Massachusetts. And these papers tended to be written, presented the Shays Rebellion in the most dramatic terms. And then he also got descriptions from Henry Knox, who's the Secretary of War, but from Massachusetts, and from Benjamin Lincoln, who is the general, been one of his aides and the general in charge of the militia that suppressed the Shays Rebellion. And, I mean, Washington was appalled. He said in one letter, who but a Briton, who but a Tory could have predicted such things? Here we had the those were the exact quote. The, the, here we had this noble opportunity of, and now I'm paraphrasing, noble opportunity of a government of the people. Almost unique in world history. It was so different than Europe at the time, which there were monarchies or China or other places where they're in an empire. Um, here we had a government of the people, and who could have su suspected that it would fall so low, that it would collapse so bad? Who but a Briton, as he said? Who but a Tory would have predicted these ends? We, in another place he wrote, we have become the laughingstock of Europe. Now, that first bothered him at a personal level. I mean, he didn't want to see the collapse of the country. It affected him, his, his hopes for his own future. But remember, one of the things Washington so cared about was his legacy. And he had a legacy because he had l helped lead the American Revolution. And if that collapsed, like so many revolutions through history have, collapsed into chaos like the French Revolution did or collapsed into worse tyranny than before, such as the Russian Revolution, if, if that would have happened in America, well, who would have remembered the war? It would have been a footnote in history. It would have been an asterisk. If we'd been reabsorbed, and in many of his letters and in letters he's receiving from people like John Jay and Henry Knox and James Madison, they're expressing concern that will even need and lose our independence, that the frontier is going to secede. He traveled out west to visit the frontier, western Pennsylvania, during this period, and he saw these settlers have no interest in the east. They're not tied to us by any interest. Britain was conspiring in the northwest, Spain in the southwest. As I mentioned, Vermont was conspiring to leave the Union altogether. Uh, there was a thought that the Spain, France, England might come back into the colonies. If this whole thing is lost, what was my sacrifice worth? What legacy will I leave? And all the soldiers who fought and died, they would have died in vain. That's what he was worried about. You mentioned the, the land in western Pennsylvania. He was a big landowner, and this is a part of your book that takes place mm -hmm. in this, this period of time. So how did he come to own land there? And would you tell the story yeah. about his trip out there to look at his land? The trip was is one of the magnificent stories that comes out during this period. About a Shortly, he, he goes back to Mount Vernon after he resigns his commission, and he gets to Mount Vernon right at the end of 1783. And his first task is to try to restore his plantation to profitability because it had been mismanaged during the war. He's a hands-on manager. The plantation is, is, you know, it's played out land. He had shifted from tobacco to grains. He would later open the largest whiskey distillery in the United States. Um, on his plantation, it turns out to be trying to find ways to profit from this somewhat played out plantation. But his future lay in the West. Before the Revolution, he had acquired vast holdings on the frontier. He had been out there as a surveyor, 
um, for Lord Fairfax, and then he'd been back out there during the F French and Indian War, famously at the Battle of Necessity, but also at the great defeat of Braddock in and around Pittsburgh. He had, during the, that period, before the American Revolution, he'd acquired vast tracts, some in what's now Pennsylvania. The, back then they didn't know if it was Virginia or Pennsylvania. It's, it's what, where Washington County, Pennsylvania is now. It was called Washington's Bottom, which I always thought was an interesting name for it. Um, and, uh, and it was humorous even back then. Washington, well, it was then it was thought to be humorous. It was then, even then. Well, Washington was sort of pear-shaped. He was a very tall man, but he was sort of pear-shaped, and he had a, he, uh, he had a, you know, Washington's bottom, yeah. I think there was, it was recognized, but it was also bottom land. Mm -hmm. um, then further down in what's now West Virginia, down the Ohio, he had vast holdings um, as well. So after he sort of gets his plantation sort of begin to get settled, he knows that his real financial future is out west. These lands had been ignored for, for a decade. So he goes out along, up the, up through what was known as Braddock's Road up to, to where it's now Pittsburgh, um, to visit his holdings. And while he's on this side of the mountains, he visits some of his small holdings. Uh, and there the settlers recognize him, they hail him. They, it's, it's tough economic times because the Confederation is collapsing. They pay what they can toward how much they've owed because they haven't paid during the whole revolution. Um, but then he goes over the mountains and ends up out on the frontier in just south of what's now Pittsburgh to his land holdings there in Washington's Bottom and on Miller's Run. It, uh, and here things are different. These frontiersmen barely recognize him and are looking for any way to avoid paying him anything. And it's the worst when he gets down to the area on Miller's Run where a, uh, a bunch of, of, of squatters from eastern Pennsylvania, they were Scotch-Irish, had moved out there and during the Revolution squatted on his land. And they knew Washington claimed the land, but they denied he had any right to it. They said, we own this land by squatting. Now, before, in in Washington's claim, he hadn't visited that land, but he'd gotten it by a, a, a patent, a royal patent. And the deal was, you invest in it, you, you, you basically purchase it. He'd gotten it from, a, from a, a veteran. And you're supposed to put, occupy it with some sort of a building. So Washington's agent had built a little cabin on it. Well, the squatters came and the Cedars, as they were officially known, they were essentially a, 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 a Scotch-Irish group who was, had come from eastern Pennsylvania, a very religious sect. They had built their own cabins right up next to this Washington's cabin, so you couldn't even open the door to Washington's cabin. So they were clearly, and they, they, they wouldn't pay him anything. They says, you have no right to the land. We're not leaving. I mean, this is the father of their country. And they give him absolutely no respect. They, 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 they even, when he gets mad and he had a temper at them, they fine him for using a profanity. You say here they, they saw themselves as called by Christ to Miller's Run and would not submit to a landlord who did not share their religious beliefs. That's true. They were, and, uh, and he thought they were a bunch of, of, of religious hypocrites. He, in his private notes about these, he says these hypocrites, all they do is they don't want to pay money. 
and they're wrapping themselves in these religious beliefs. But if they were truly religious, in the sort of religion that I know and recognize, they would respect their debts and their obligations. These fellows are just hypocrites. So he had an abs, what, what he wrote about them, he just thought they were hypocrites. They, in contrast, Washington was not a, was not a um, sort of this Scotch-Irish Puritan Calvinist, this very hardcore um, religious belief. Washington didn't have those beliefs at all. He was a very, very lax um, Episcopalian who had, by this time, had stopped taking communion. So they, they, they weren't his religious beliefs, but he thought it was all just a sham to not pay him. He ends up fighting for years to, in court, to evict them or force them to pay. And uh, it's a long battle that's finally settled by um, your famous judge, uh, Judge uh, Tom McCain, um, who then, because a go famous governor of Pennsylvania, had been governor of Delaware, signer of the Declaration of Independence, finally rules on Washington's side, but it's years later. Then it's even worse. Washington tries to go on down to his greatest land holdings, which are further down the Ohio River, and he's warned that the Native Americans, armed by the British, are lying in wait for him and are planning to kidnap him and hold him for hostage or worse, um, hold him for ransom or worse. Now, that rings true, or ring true to Washington, because his agent, I think the one who built the house in Miller's Run, but his agent a year before had been captured by the Native Americans um, and, uh, and scalped, roasted alive, and killed by them. And when Washington heard this, and he tried to at first get troops from up in the fort up near what's now Pittsburgh, to, but then he finds out there's not enough troops to do this right. He doesn't want to um, risk a unfortunate outcome, given what he knows. So he can't even reach his final property. Now remember, that's when the Native Americans, allied with the British who are still occupying the forts and who are trading with them for furs and are being supplied guns for capturing fur, but of course these guns can be used for other purposes than shooting animals. Um, Britain is clearly conspiring in the Northwest and in allegiance somewhat with the Native Americans who were very frustrated because the new American government, such as it was, Washington often uses that phrase, if you can call it a government, he writes in his letters, the central government couldn't really be dealing with them. And so Washington comes back and then he, then one thing he, he revives in his mind is earlier on, he and some other Virginians had the idea of, a, of, a, of having a navigation system across the Potomac to the Ohio Valley. It would go through three states. It would go through Maryland, Virginia, and Pennsylvania. So uh, on his trip, he gave up and came home? Well, he comes home, but rather than come home on the normal route with his caravan and his tents and everything, he gives up, but he, he bushwhacks. Now, as a, as a young surveyor, he knew this, he'd gone through this territory quite a bit, and he, he, he loved the frontier. And I think this is sort of a last wilderness experience of George Washington. He's, for parts of this trip, he's coming back alone, it appears. Um, and he bushwhacks through um, unmapped territory, sort of south of Braddock's Road, in, so he's sort of cutting across what's mostly Virginia, but areas of Pennsylvania. He's cutting across there. He's following buffalo trails. He's riding on his great horse. It rains the whole time. He often, if he can't find a cabin, he has to sleep outside. He doesn't even have a tent. He just sleeps outside under his coat, getting rained upon. He goes, he crosses what he calls the 
Briary Mountains, which are aptly named because um, he finds them quite painful as he's riding across with this on this great horse of his pushing through these branches. And he, he traveled alone for part of that? For part of the trip. At first his nephew goes with him, but then he was originally going to go up the river back and join the party. But then when he decides to keep bushwhacking, he sends his, his nephew up north. And he continues on, staying at some cabins. Now, he's clearly, from reading his diary, he's enjoying the adventure, enjoying the time to think. But what he's thinking about is, and you can, you can see it in his reports as soon as he writes back, because he sends off a letter to the governor of Virginia immediately, he begins engaged in this new project known as the Potomac Company. And that is creating a navigation system up the Potomac, clearing the Potomac, widening the Potomac, making some bypass canals up the Potomac. He hopes it'll connect on through to the Cheat River and then into the Ohio Valley because he sees the frontier as being lost. And so he argues for both national and personal reasons. We are going to lose the frontier. The, as he puts it, the frontiersmen are as on a pivot. They could, they are going to go with the, their line of interest. They have no particular allegiance to us at all. They hadn't shown him much respect. They're, they're going to go where their trade goes. And right now, they either have to carry their goods to market up through Canada, British Canada, or down through, more likely, through Spanish New Orleans, down the Mississippi. So those two countries, they're going to go with their allegiance unless we can connect them through a navigation system. Now, it turns out the Erie Canal turns out to be a better route. And so that profits more. But the Potomac Navigation System, the Potomac Company, does open for business. It takes a long time. But Washington leads the project. And what he's doing on this trip back is looking for waterways, looking for routes, looking for the closest connection, making notes. And he comes back convinced he's found it. And he starts lobbying for funds. He gets a company formed by Maryland and Virginia that, that can engage in building this um, riverway, which will then go up through Pennsylvania. Uh, and he's engaged in starting this. His editors, his later editors, call this his return to public life. Uh, he becomes president of the company. He actively organizes, hires the worker. He, he goes up there. He oversees the blasting and the dredging and this really difficult work in building a navigation system up through the uh, Potomac and on into the West. And he thinks that's going to not only create profit for himself and others in Virginia, create profit for the frontiersmen. But this is how he argues, argues it in papers, in letters, in pleas to the Virginia and Maryland legislature. This is going to link the West with the East, preserve our union. It has a national cause, and our future is tied to the West. If we're only a colonial, we're only a coastal country, we'll never be anything. Our future, not only investors, wealthy people, but also the common people, they have a future because we're a land of opportunity, because there is a frontier. And if we lose the frontier, we lose, well, we'd say the American dream. But you say that Pennsylvania wasn't too crazy about his idea about the canal. Well, they were, they were concerned because Robert Morris, who was a leading Pennsylvania financier, was interested in the exact same project going up the, the, the rivers through Pennsylvania, the Susquehanna, going up through that way to the west. And so he's raising another company. He's forming another company to make a navigation route through Pennsylvania on into the West. So they're actually become competing routes. Washington, though, um, has the 
is close friends with Morris, and he even writes Morris a solicitation letter saying, invest in our company. I think it's the best possible investment anybody could make. Um, so he's even soliciting Robert Morris to put, invest in, the, in his Pens uh, Potomac navigation system. Robert Morris politely declines because he's building his own. So Pens and so the question was, and this is critical actually, this has a long, a big resonance. He's afraid that because of Pennsylvania's self-interest with its own canal, that it won't grant the necessary approvals for his canal up that's coming up through the right on the border of Maryland and Virginia. He manages to work out a compromise, a deal called the Mount Vernon Compact, where Maryland and Virginia, which had been at loggerheads, agreed to joint navigation. He knew Pennsylvania had to agree. The issue is why it has a resonance is it, it's because back then, under the Articles of Confederation, each, each state was a Republican to itself, and it controlled commerce in its state. There was no national control over interstate commerce. And so when Washington later is lobbying for a constitutional convention and then ag agrees to go, it's only on the conviction that one of the powers the national government will gain will be total control over interstate commerce. So nobody can stop a canal because that's in the nation's interest. In your research for the book and reading everything that uh, Washington wrote during this time, was there any indication that he actually thought he might return to public life? He knew that was a possibility. In honesty, I truly believe that he was happy at Mount Vernon. He was willing to stay. He did not covet the presidency. He did not covet power. What he always had admitted as a child and admitted throughout that he did, that his interest, everyone has an interest. And he was interested in leaving a legacy. He was interested in fame. And he had won it during the revolution. And if, if he'd come back and the country had failed, he would lose his luster. And so that was always a balancing act. What he became convinced of was that if he didn't go to the Constitutional Convention, the Constitutional Convention would fail, that it needed the strength of his name. He was told that by many Pennsylvanians, Wilson, James Wilson, Robert Morris, Governor Morris, um, even Ben Franklin, um, but also by John Jay, people from Massachusetts, all over. He was hearing it from everyone. If you don't come, the Constitutional Convention will fail. And if then later, if you don't become president, at least for a while, in the beginning he was hoping he might only serve a couple of years and then step down, the country will fail. If you don't push for ratification, and if people don't think you're going to become president, you won't be ratified. Now, he was hearing this from everybody, um, and even the opponents, even the anti-federalists, even the people who opposed him, conceded that, with, that Washington was the one who carried the government. Washington's presence was critical for the Constitutional Convention. So it didn't matter what side, Washington was central. And, but his fear was if they failed, then he would lose his political capital. His, he, he, if he couldn't pull it off, then it couldn't be pulled off. And he was convinced that the country w would literally unravel, states would go their own way, political independence would be lost, individual liberty would be lost, 
private property rights would be lost. Did he go to the Constitutional Convention expecting to just be a figurehead sitting up there presiding, or did, was he involved in discussions and try to steer things toward his views? Well, it's difficult to know exactly what Washington did during the Constitutional Convention. We've got a lot of clues, but the reason is exactly is he is immediately elected as president of the Constitutional Convention. And by tradition, by the way a president serves, a presiding officer doesn't speak in the debates. And the record, best record we have of the Constitutional Convention is Madison's debates where he records the debates. So Washington isn't speaking in that debates. But we do have, as I say, a lot of clues. Washington is a voting member of the convention. Mm. He always votes with the Virginia delegation. Indeed, his vote becomes crucial when, two, when George Wyeth leaves because his wife is dying, and it gets down to a five-member delegation, and two of them flip and turn on the Constitution. And so in the end, it's Washington's vote, three to two, Washington's vote that carries Pennsylvania and has Pennsylvania support at the Constitutional Convention the, the Constitution. Otherwise, Virginia would have voted no. It passes unanimously, but partly because Rhode Island never showed up and New York had left. Um, but Washington's vote there. But you can also see Washington's votes in many of the key compromises. Often he is the decisive vote within Virginia. So you can see his voting. So you see what he's doing there. He also writes letters during the convention. And those letters mirror what's happening at the debates going on at the convention. So he's writing off to somebody in Virginia, or he's writing off to Thomas Jefferson, and we can see him discussing the day's activities. He also, he lived at Robert Morris's mansion, which many considered the finest mansion in Philadelphia. He could have stayed there all the time. He could have, he could have eaten his meals there. He often dined with the delegates in the various taverns, like City Tavern. So um, when they were kind of negotiating, hashing over things, he was in the thick of it? He would often go. And it often seems to be when he appears is when deals are brokered. For example, there's, was a, there's a divisive debate tearing apart the convention over the nature of the executive. And, and on one day, they couldn't decide whether to have a, a single executive, a so-called unitary executive, or a, or a three-person committee be the president, be the executive, such as in uh, Republican Rome, where you had a th three-member council. Um, and they, the proponents of that view thought it would better represent the three parts of the country and, present a, and make it less likely we get a monarchy. Well, the night of that great debate, Washington, we know, eats at City Tavern joins the group at City Tavern. And Pierce Butler usually ate at City Tavern. Um, and Pierce Butler later said um, that the, the convention, the delegates, would not have made as strong a presidency had they not looked on George Washington and been respected of his virtue. Well, the very next day when the delegates go back, very, the very next meeting after this dinner in, in the City Tavern, the delegates vote, the states vote, eight to three, for a unitary executive, a single executive. Now, what exactly role did Washington play on that? Well, we can sort of piece it together, but he was with them the night before. They ate with the man who would be that king, and Pierce Butler is saying, we look at his virtue and we can trust him with this power. 
Although you, you describe a scene, I guess it was during the de debate uh, for the uh, Constitution where the issue of whether we have a president or not comes up and suddenly everyone's kind of oh. awkward, like, <coughs> oh, um, like they're realizing yeah. that it's Washington they're talking right. about and he's sitting up there. Well, the Virginia plan, which Washington participated in, in drafting, we know that all the meetings for the Virginia plan, which was the original draft of the Constitution, the Washington attended all those sessions. So Washington was involved in the drafting of the Virginia plan. Madison had spent a couple months with Washington at Mount Vernon before going to the Philadelphia Convention. And so the Virginia plan calls for an executive, single executive. Um, and so we get, they get to that part early on, before the big debate over three or one that I was talking about, they get to that provision in the, in the, in the uh, Virginia plan, that resolution. And they had wrangled about earlier resolutions and suddenly nobody says anything because they all have tremendous admiration for Washington. He is a celebrity, but they, they don't know him that well yet. It's early in the convention, and they, they don't really want to cross him. They don't know what to say. And after this silence, he says, well, should we just move on to the next part? And Ben Franklin, the only person with a similar stature, gets up and says, and Ben Franklin makes timely contributions to the convention throughout. People said he was old. Well, he was old, but he was still pretty wise. He gets up and says, look, we know this government's going to be led well by the first leader, referring to Washington. But after that, who knows what's happened? This is important. He doesn't quite say this, but what the presidency is is something new under the sun. There hadn't been anything quite like it before. And he says, and he urges them to talk about this, to discuss it. This merits a lot of discussion. And so that bursts the dam. Then there are days of discussion then. They come back to it two other times with days of discussion. It's a, it's a, it's a hot topic. And you can follow Washington's vote, so much as it's recorded, you can follow Washington's votes throughout. And he is consistently voting for a stronger presidency, a stronger executive. What kind of relationship did he have with Benjamin Franklin? An interesting relationship. They, they, had, they were not warm friends. You said they hadn't met. Before. Oh no, they'd met. They'd met at the They'd met at the uh, during the um, uh, uh, the Continental Congresses mm. because Washington served in the first and second Continental Congress and um, is chosen actually by the Continental Congress to serve as a mm. uh, as a as a general. Those met in Philadelphia, and so he knew Washington. Uh, he knew Franklin. Washington knew Franklin. But at that time, Washington was not a celebrity. Franklin already was a celebrity, um, and so when you. And Washington wrote letters to Franklin. We have a lot. We have quite a few, quite a correspondence between the two. And where Washington was was Washington was a great conversationalist. He was had he, he had many younger men who were who were almost like his surrogate sons. He had no children of his own, um, like surrogate sons. Where whether it, we're talking about a James Madison for a long time, or a Lafayette, or a Hamilton for a while, or or uh, or David Humphreys. Uh, Henry, La Henry Lawrence, there were lots of people who fell in that category. There were also some people, they were like brothers, um, such as Robert Morris, um, uh, George Clinton, the governor of, of New York, who they'd served so much time together in the war. Franklin was a different sort. Franklin was an intellectual. Washington wasn't an intellectual. Washington, Washington was not an intellectual. He was not an intellectual. Mm -hmm. He wasn't a, he had a great wisdom. He could pull ideas together, but he wasn't a policy wonk like, a, like um, Madison. He wasn't an a intellectual in the sense of a Franklin or a Jefferson. Um, he, 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 
but he had tremendous respect for Franklin. He was very concerned, for example, during this period when Franklin agreed to be president of Pennsylvania, the governor of Pennsylvania, he, he was very concerned um, with Franklin taking that job, not because he didn't want Franklin to be the governor or the president of Pennsylvania, but he was afraid that if the whole thing collapses, Franklin will lose some of his credibility. And we need a Franklin to make a stronger union. And so when Washington comes up to Philadelphia for the Constitutional Convention, one of the first things he does is have dinner at, at Franklin's house. He goes, visits Franklin on that first day. He spends the afternoon there because they know they have to get a working relationship. They can't be working at, against each other. And Franklin is, is famous for being a compromiser and pulling the sides together, especially in fractured Pennsylvania, which has two. The reason why he's such a successful governor is he's got two parties that won't talk to each other, um, that is dividing the state with Morris on one side and another collection on the other side. And he's able to bridge the gap. He's the one person who can. And he's going to be needed in that role to pull off this constitutional convention. And so Washington and him meet together periodically um, in private. We don't know what is said at those sessions, but they, they meet together regularly. So they had a close working relationship. And when the Constitution eventually comes out, most articles about it, most Americans at the time, attributed the Constitution to those two men. They, say, they would say, countless articles would say, this is the work of a Franklin. This is a work of a Washington. How can you not be for it? That alone makes it, made it credible for most Americans. That alone won ratification, even the most fierce opponents of the Constitution, as well as its strongest supporters. All one thing they agree on is a document would not have passed, would not have been ratified, would not have even made it out of the convention, but for a Washington and a Franklin. But when it came to ratification, it sounds like Washington's own Virginia had a lot of opposition. Well, Virginia was one of the key centers of opposition. New York, Virginia, Massachusetts were the key centers of opposition. There was also opposition in Pennsylvania, but it was handled very quickly. And those states were key because those were the four biggest, most important, crucial states. You couldn't have a country without those states. So what happened in Virginia is two of its delegates especially George Mason, but also Randolph, but especially George Mason came back very much opposed to the Constitution. He thought that it took away individual rights. He thought that Virginia is doing fine. Why do we need a larger union? And he found a critical ally in Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry was by already a legendary orator. He was a former governor. He was the most powerful person in the state. No one was close. And he was dead set against the ratification of the Constitution. And he brought with him others, including uh, James Monroe, um, a future president, who are leading anti-federalists. So there's a strong anti-federal coalition. Now, at that time, Virginia still included what's now Kentucky, as well as West Virginia. And the delegates from Kentucky tended to be opposed as well, because these were these frontier people who were, it was feared, were conspiring with Spain anyway. So you had a fluid group. You had some dead-set opponents, as you had in New York. Um, you had some strong supporters, led by Washington, 
by Madison, of course, was back. And Marshall, who was born in Pennsylvania, but by this time was a leading citizen of Virginia. He soon would become a member of Congress and then later, of course, um, is Chief Justice of the United States. He's young, but he's very much engaged and he's very much a nationalist. Um, so you had two strong factions in Virginia and no one knew who had a majority. If Jefferson, if, if Washington hadn't supported it, well, it never would have passed. If Patrick Henry hadn't opposed it, well, it would have passed easily. It was, Jefferson was still over in France and both sides were lobbying to get Jefferson support. That's part of the reason I believe Washington sent him so many letters. Um, the rumor was that he was promised that if he would support the Constitution, he would be given a cabinet post, which he later got. But that was a rumor at the time. That similar rumor that if Randolph would flip and support the Constitution at the convention, that he would get a cabinet post, which he did get. There's no evidence that the promise was made, but it certainly was discussed at the time. So Washington was actively involved in, would he have called himself a federalist? Well, he would uh, traditionally use the term national, a national government. But after the convention was over, the nationalist, as it were, co-opted the title of federalist. And so, yes, he would have called himself a federalist. Now, he didn't believe in partisan government. He believed that you shouldn't have political parties, you should elect people, and they should stand, they should vote their conscience. But he was actively backing ratification. He was sending letters all across the country. He was deeply involved in the whole process, and especially in Virginia. When he was afraid of what Patrick Henry would do, he basically ordered James Madison, they were very close then, to attend the convention, uh, to be a delegate. Madison didn't want to because Madison was, as I said, he was sort of a policy wonk. He liked back room. He was, he was a very, he was a great, um, he had a great mind and he was a great plotter and he was a great strategist and he was very intense, but he didn't like being out in public. Um, Washington ordered him to go to the convention and answer um, Patrick Henry, who was not a disciplined debater. He was sort of a wandering, throwing bombs and th a very, very um, explosive speaker, but he wasn't a disciplined debater. He ordered Madison to go. And then when it looked like Madison wouldn't be elected if he didn't campaign, he ordered poor um, Madison to go and campaign um, for the office. And so he gets, he gets elected and he, Madison's there, but so is Marshall, so are some other people. It's a very close call. They did not know which side would win. And repeatedly, the anti-federalist leaders said, this government, this, 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 this ratifying convention would never approve this, but for Washington. What they were basically saying was, we think this is a fatally flawed system, but because you, the people, envision Washington lead it. Washington's projected leadership makes what we view as a fatally flawed system attractive in most eyes because people think with Washington leading it, we can indeed unify this country. So, and at the end of it, Monroe said, make no mistake about it, it was Washington that carried this Constitution. When the Constitution was finally approved, they had to have a presidential election. How did that, we always hear that Washington was elected unanimously, but how did that actually work? Well, yes, it's, it's a, there is the first federal election. Now, what most people are seeing is the election for Congress, the first time they'd elected, people had elected members of Congress because the old Confederation Congress was picked by the state legislatures and each delegate 
could serve at the will of the state legislature. They didn't have terms. They could be withdrawn at any time. They were paid by the state legislatures, and they could be instructed how to vote by the state legislatures. So virtually they were the tool of the states. These members of Congress were elected in districts, um, and they would represent the people. So they wouldn't be directly representatives of the state. Uh, the senators would serve, would be elected by the state legislatures, but they would serve long terms. They would be paid by the national government, and they wouldn't, they couldn't be recalled or instructed. They'd get a full six-year term. By that time, they could be pretty independent. So, you you had this big election, both four state legislatures who would pick the senators, and you had election directly to Congress, and so you you had this was the major focus. And so there were campaigns, there were major efforts. Washington was very involved in recruiting candidates to, who would support the Constitution because he knew that the Anti-Federalists, even though they'd lost in ratification, if they took over Congress, they could gut, as he said, they could totally um, eviscerate the government. And as he put it in one letter, he says, it would be so frustrating to be shipwrecked so close to shore that if we had an Anti-Federal Congress that didn't effectuate the laws needed to carry through the Constitution. Now, in his own election, there never was any doubt. What you had is states either elected electors, because we had this electoral college system which was designed to give votes to the South. The Pennsylvanians at the Constitution Convention were all pushing for a national vote for president. Whether it was Morris or Wilson, they said, uh, we just vote, have all the people vote. But the problem in the South was that most of the people were black slaves and they weren't going to be allowed to vote. So the Northerners would get a disproportionate number of vote. So the Southerners, they came up with a compromise that, that uh, Pennsylvanian Governor Morris helped broker where you got, an, you, the, you would vote for electors and the states would get number of electors based on their free population plus three-fifths of their slaves. And that gave back votes to the South that they wouldn't have had with the popular vote. So we've got this system coming about not because of Washington, for a whole nother reason. And so the only people who actually voted were electors, and that's why Washington was unanimous. There certainly would have been individuals who would have voted against him. And so you look around the states. The Federalists won in most states, and they were, of course, going to vote for Washington. But in two key states were anti-Federalist anti strongholds, were Virginia and New York. Well, even if the anti-Federalists won in New York, in, in, excuse me, in Virginia, they were still going to vote for their favorite son. They weren't, even the anti-federalists, even Patrick Henry said, look, for, we, we want to elect, we don't want to elect John Adams as vice president. We want an anti-federalist vice president. They were pulling for George Clinton of New York. But for president, you know, we've got to elect Washington. And then New York, the other anti-federal state, George Clinton was the governor. He was in charge of that state. Washington and Clinton were like brothers. They, they were, they were, they co-invested in property. Washington always stayed at his house. They were tremendously close friends. And George Clinton, who named his first son George Washington Clinton and his first daughter Martha Washington Clinton, was not about to let the electors who were all committed to him um, not vote for Washington. So Washington was going to win unanimously from the outset. Oh, you, you say in the, in the book that uh, also James Madison, the fourth, future fourth president, and James mm -hmm. Monroe, the future fifth president, ran against each other in the same congressional district. That was the workings of Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry wanted more than anything to keep James Madison, his, 
who had fought him at the Constitutional Convention, who he viewed as a prime architect of the Constitution. He wanted to keep him out at all costs. Now, Madison originally wanted to be one of the senators from Virginia. And you'd figure that they would go one anti-federal, there were two anti-federalists running and one federalist. And they figured the way the state uh, legislature breaks down, since they all get these votes, that one of the anti-federalists would get the most votes and then Madison would come in second and the anti-federalists would trail behind. But Patrick Henry arc orchestrated it perfectly so that the two anti-federalists would come in ahead of Madison. So he didn't get the Senate seat, much to his frustration. And then to one-up that, he drew the congressional districts in a way that Madison's home was on the very eastern fringe of a district that went west into anti-federalist country that made it look like it was impossible that Madison could win this district. He did what is later called gerrymandering for Governor Jerry of Virginia, uh, Massachusetts. It should be called Henrymandering because Henry did it first. <laughs> and not only did he do that, but he passed a clearly unconstitutional law that said that only delegates from the district, only a resident of the district could run for Congress. The Constitution is clear you can live anywhere in the state. So they force, and that's all designed on Madison, to force him to run in a district he couldn't win in. And then he gets the great James Monroe, the future fifth president of the United States, already famous. He'd cross the Delaware with, with, um, with Washington. Um, he gets Monroe to run. And so the two of them run against each other. Washington orders Madison out there to campaign. Washington, uh, Madison goes out campaigning through the district. It's middle of winter having debates with Monroe in the various counties and calling upon his old, to win over these frontiers people, most of whom, many of whom were Methodist or Baptists, most weren't Episcopalians. Earlier, Madison had been the architect, along with Jefferson, of the Virginia uh, Declaration of Religious Freedom, the one that deestablishes the Episcopal Church in Virginia, and he uses that to gain credibility among the Lutherans and among the Baptists and among the Methodists out in the frontier uh, to say, look, I fought for you, and if I go to Congress, I'll get you a Bill of Rights, including a religious freedom in the Bill of Rights, because I have influence. I can get this done. And on that, he narrowly beats Monroe. We're just about out of time. Do you have another book in the works? Well, I'm always working on a variety of different books, and there's some more work on Washington to be done to carry the story forward. And I also, because of earlier works with the Scopes trial and other things, I'm co-authoring a book on that deals with um, the uh, sort of the science and religion debate in America. Well, we are out of time. There's a lot more we could talk about. Uh, this is the book we have been talking about, The Return of George Washington. It's author Edward Larson. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on the program. It was a delightful. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.